Welcome to the Melinda Eitzen Show. I'm Melinda. Today I have our marketing director, Mo Martin, with us. Welcome, Mo. Hi, Melinda. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. This is my very first podcast. <laughs> oh, you're doing great already. Oh, thank you. So we're going to talk today about common misconceptions about divorce. And from your lens, you have seen different queries come in and you have a list. I've seen it all at this point. <laughs> the first misconception I'd like to discuss today is that divorce is always contentious. That by filing, you're essentially signing up for a months or years long war with your future ex-partner. That every aspect of the process is a battle from child custody to property division to child support. You know, you're going to be involved in a very angry, argumentative situation. And I wanted to know, is that most of our divorces? I mean, is that most of your experience? That's a great question. So usually not. So people, I think, do, there could be, right? There are cases where they're fighting it out to war. And that's usually because somebody has a mental health problem. But the average person, the average divorce, it's not a fight. A different way to think about it is we have a problem to solve. And the problem we have at hand is how are they going to divide their assets and debts? How are they going to share time with their children? How are they going to pay for their children's lives going forward? And we carry them through a problem-solving model. And that could be in collaborative, which is a non-court process, or even in litigation, which is the court model, most cases settle. And we can be our higher selves and not be down in the dirt. And you actually favor collaborative in a lot of cases. Um, can you explain like why that process is so appealing to you? Yes, I love it for many reasons. And one time we did this survey to see why people liked it, both the professionals working in it and the clients that were selecting it. And I was shocked at all the different reasons that came about. But I like it because it is a more respectful approach without forfeiting anything. Like sometimes people, I think, have the misconception that, oh, if I do it nicely, I'm going to give up some right. No, not at all. I think you can actually get a better deal because collaborative allows for creative solutions that the courts don't have available to them. So I like it for the creative solution part. I like it because I want to be more my higher, better self. And I like that for my clients. And then clients like it because it's very private. So I laugh because most people are not famous, right? Most of our clients, I have some that you would know their name, but most are not famous. But I think they're kind of fake famous or they think they're famous <laughs> and they really want their business kept private and the courthouse is not a private venue. That's great. Uh, the second misconception is that, and I hear this one a lot, is that adultery costs you the case. That by being unfaithful to your partner, you're essentially just forfeiting all of your stuff. You know, you've made that mistake. The judge will never side with you. That it's the most important aspect of the marriage. And that, so clients will come in and be like, I was unfaithful. Like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to lose custody. In your experience, is that how judges treat adultery? You know, I um, also have the person come in who was betrayed, right? And they're saying the other person committed adultery and they should be burned on a stake in the yard. And the truth is, I hate to say it this way because it sounds unfeeling, but no one cares. 
And the way, the reason I say that is almost every case has adultery and the judges have a more sophisticated understanding of why marriage fails, that it fails not because of one person's act, but they've had something in their marriage fail that caused someone to feel free to go commit adultery. So they recognize it's more complex and they're not, there's not a big punishment at the courthouse. I think, um, in this day and age, people are more understanding that humans are flawed and they make bad choices. And that doesn't mean they lose all their property or their kids. <laughs> well, with the technology too, I mean, it's so easy to be unfaithful. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot of different versions of adultery. And so it's more common to see both sides dabble in some version of this. They have both are flawed human beings and have made mistakes in their marriage. Completely. And adultery is one example, but it could be there was financial adultery, you know, where they were What's secret. That? It's like secretly spending money or running up credit cards your spouse doesn't know about or gambling away a bunch of money. You know, there's different things we can do in marriage that aren't very good <laughs> poor choices besides physical adultery with another human. That's good. I'm glad that we know that. I mean, it's that's one of the most uh, when you're on TV. When I see TV shows mm -hmm. and I like, you know, Law and Order, um, that's always something that gets brought up. Is like a big twist. Of, yeah, Scarlet Letter. Yeah, <laughs> we're past the Scarlet Letter. Exactly. A third misconception is that mothers will always get custody. I hear this a lot in Texas, especially that. They are afraid that the courts just automatically will favor the mom no matter what situation they have. And obviously there are, you know, extraneous circumstances like if the mother is into drugs or has some sort of bad behavior. We're not including those. But in a general divorce case, does the mother always get the majority custody just because she is the mother? No, that day is gone. <laughs> so uh, dads are people too. The... Um, history of that, you know, it just goes back to old-fashioned times when moms did everything for the kids and dads were out plowing the field or whatever they were doing. And now in modern day, um, usually both people work and both people take care of their children. So we're really moving as a society, I think, to more equal time, parenting time. The law isn't there yet. The law still says that as a starting point, if the judge were considering it, that the judge should give one person a little bit more time. But both parents are going to have a lot of court-ordered parenting time. It's not just because you're the mom or just because you're the better parent, mom or dad, that you're going to primarily have the child. That's not how it works. They're both going to have a lot of influence and time with their children. Which we know is the most beneficial outcome for the child. Mm -hmm. I mean... Mm -hmm. Uh, we work with a lot of finance—not uh, financial, mental health, mental health professionals yes. Yes, at Duffy Knights Inn. And what has really stuck with me over the years is that the at like when you're advocating for the child, both parents, no matter what kind of situation the divorce is, it's, it's very highly encouraged that both mm -hmm. parents have equal custody, yes. or at least like are both High highly involvement. involvement in their jail. Yeah, life. if they're not in jail, if they're not an axe murderer, they're going to be really involved with that kiddo. Yeah. And actually, a related misconception that we're talking about next is that only women get spousal support or alimony. 
Um, this is a big one as well that you hear about that men are stuck paying for their ex-spouse for mm -hmm. a long time because women like get rule they're ruling in their favor mm -hmm. for child support even if there's no child spousal yeah, support spousal support so texas is not a very friendly sport friendly state to spousal support or alimony whatever you want to call it um regardless of the gender right and either person could qualify under the law it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman it's all about earning level and how they compare financially ability to earn in the future. And again, just back to olden times, men historically made more money than women. So it was more likely that if someone qualified, it would be the woman. But our laws are so poor, very few people qualify, man or woman, to get alimony or spousal support. And the way we make up for it a little bit in Texas is the court can divide the property disproportionately. So they could give one person more than 50% of the marital estate, the assets and debts, um, to make up for the lack of spousal support. But our law is very stingy in Texas. Now, in California, much easier to get spousal support. Again, it's not gender specific, man or woman, whoever the lower wage earner is. And you could get it for a long time. But you have to get divorced in the state you live in. You can't just move to California tomorrow and get divorced. You have to live there for a period of time. And in Texas, you have to live here six months before you could file for divorce here. They don't want people to forum shop. What's a good example of or a scenario where someone would qualify for spousal support in Texas? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm embarrassed to say I can't tell you precisely because <laughs> it comes up so infrequently. But you have to be married a certain number of years. So 10 years is a key amount of time and then there has to be uh, the person receiving or requesting the alimony or spousal support has to be unable to meet their minimum reasonable needs and that's factoring in not only their ability to earn but what they're going to get out of the estate so if they're going to get I'm just going to make up numbers 300,000 in a combination of you know some cash maybe some retirement and they earn 30000 a year, they wouldn't qualify because they are able to meet their minimum re reasonable needs. Now, we know that doesn't set you up for life. That's not a lot of money any way you look at it, but it's very hard to qualify. So you almost have to have a weird scenario where you have a large wage earner, let's say the husband to be historically <laughs> consistent and the wife you know in the traditional old-fashioned sense was a stay-at-home mom she had no education no job she raised the kids now the husband's going to leave the marriage with his earnings right he has this great earning capability she supported him and helped him to reach that point and they amassed nothing so they were just, you know, overspending beyond their means. So they have no money. She has no way to make a living. That's the person who would qualify. But okay. that person is very rare. You know, usually they amass something decent, you know, some amount if somebody was earning a bunch of money. And now most people have two income families. You know, most women do work. And, or they did work or they had the education to work and maybe they just stepped out of working for a little while to raise their kids. So usually it's better to just be able to earn a living. <laughs> yeah. So basically don't count on it. You know, if no. you're planning on getting divorced, don't assume you're going to be right. getting a monthly stipend from 
your partner. Right. And when women come in to me and say, hey, I don't have a job. Should I get one? Or is that going to hurt my chance to get uh, spousal support? I'm like, get a job. You are so much better off being able to earn your own money. You have no guarantee you're going to get the spousal support and it doesn't last very long. So if you did qualify, you're only going to get it for a few years. So earn your own money, get a job. <laughs> I like that. Um, as a woman run law firm, I, I think that's very pro, <laughs> pro our gender. Independent women. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Uh, the fifth misconception is that divorces always end up in court, that no matter what you do, you're going to trial. It's going to be a huge show <laughs> and all of your dirty laundry is going to be aired for anyone to listen to or read online. Yes. Some people are like, I want to tell the judge. <laughs> Well, exactly 85%, right? <laughs> they do want to tell someone. 85% of cases settle. At least. I think my settlement rate is higher than that. So most people are not going to go to trial. It's terribly expensive to go to trial. So you wouldn't want to go to trial without a really good reason because you're going to spend so much money doing it. And it's not just the cost financially. It's an emotional cost. I mean, think of how much emotional damage it could do to everybody to drag us all through court because court is where people are going to point out the ugliness. You know, they're going to, it encourages people to talk badly about each other and most cases settle. So even if they're on the path to court, the judges will require everyone to go to mediation, which is a settlement process. And the mediator is there. I serve as a mediator sometimes for other people's cases. And the mediator is neutral. They're not a decision maker, they're a, a facilitator. So most cases settle in mediation. And that allows people to keep control of their own deal. They're not putting it in the hands of a judge who does not know them and is gonna have very limited information about them. So settlement is the way to go, but some cases have to be tried. Probably because the other side is crazy. If I'm trying it, that's usually what it is. We can't get them to be reasonable. And maybe we need to protect the child. And it's a situation where we're in there seeking protection. Do you think your experience as a mediator has led to your higher settlement rate? Because you're, you've been in that position so many times and in the position of being a, a counsel. So... Do you think that's led to your higher settlement rate? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you I've seen a lot of deals struck, right? So I've seen a lot of creative solutions. So I have all that in my pocket for my own cases. And when I find myself hitting a roadblock in one of my cases, I kind of think about what would I do if I was the mediator? Like, how would I approach this? Or what is the reason we're struggling here? So I do think the skills complement each other. Absolutely. And any type of um, problem solving, uh, communication, it's all down to communication. You know, that's the base. Like if you can't communicate effectively, you're not going to be successful settling or at trial. So anytime I can improve those skills by doing it or through, you know, going to seminars or learning, reading, that helps in every aspect. Is it typically one mediation and then trial or can there be multiple mediations before you end up in court? Oh, good question. So sometimes they'll go more than once. I would say on average, they would go one time, but there are times when I'm the mediator and we almost got there, 
I would even say it's still one mediation, but it might occur in more than one day because we're not quite there. Maybe they didn't have all the information they needed to mediate effectively, but they didn't realize that until we were in the heat of it. And so we'll take a break and come back another day and finish. But sometimes I sometimes in the second mediator, they did not have success. And maybe it was the timing of the mediation the first time. The timing in the case is important. It might not have been ready to settle. Or maybe that wasn't the right mediator. So sometimes I get hired as the second mediator. Gotcha. And we get it done. Well, I, I have seen many of our clients, you know, mm -hmm. come in wanting their day in court and as the case evolves, end up settling. And mm -hmm. I've noticed that over the years. Sometimes their day in court looks different. And maybe it's talking to the mediator. <laughs> <laughs> tell the mediator instead of paying for the privilege to tell the judge. Great. Uh, number six is that all assets are divided equally. All of my stuff is split perfectly, you know, flawlessly, no issue with income or cars or, you know, any assets split right down the middle every time. Is yeah, that, that's is that true. That is not true. Yeah. And it's a great question. And people do come in and they think we're going to liquidate their whole estate. Like we're going to sell all the cars to that's divide the money. <laughs> so it doesn't work that way. Um, first of all, we have to identify what is the community estate versus separate estates? Because the community estate is what is in the pot to be divided. And separate property is anything somebody received at any time by inheritance or gift. So their grandfather died, they inherited money during the marriage. If that money still exists and they kept it separate, that's our separate property. That's not in the pot to be divided. Then there's also something they owned prior to the marriage. And it still exists, and they can identify it, and they can trace it from prior to the marriage to today. That's separate property, not in the pot to be divided. It's a little more complicated than I'm saying here, but that's the general idea. And everything else is in the pot to be divided. So it doesn't matter whose name it's in. So her 401k is 401k. doesn't matter that it's in their name only. doesn't matter how they handled their money. Like some couples say, hey, we always kept our money separate. So that's my money or his or her money. No one cares about that. <laughs> so even if you don't have a joint account, if you keep right. your own accounts, it's right. still community property. It's still property. community property. If you earned it during the marriage, it's community. Or if you bought it during the marriage, it's community, generally speaking. And that pot is going to be divided in a fair and just manner. So like I said earlier, it's not necessarily 50-50. But the biggest reason it might not be 50-50 is if there's a huge difference in earning capability and the estate is not large. So... My example earlier where the high wage earner, maybe it's a doctor, they spend all their money, she doesn't have education or she's going to have to get back in the workforce, then in that instance, she would probably get more than half. But when we see someone get more than half, it's usually not more than 60%. So it could be disproportionate in the way it's divided. But then we would figure out, we put it all on a spreadsheet and we offset things. So you know, she's going to get her car and let's say her car is worth 15000 Well, that means he needs something worth 15000 If we were doing 50-50, he would need something worth 15000 on his side of the spreadsheet. And so somebody might get the house and we would figure out, okay, the fair market value of the house minus the debt is this number. That goes on their side of the spreadsheet. So the other person needs something to offset that. So we don't have to sell everything and liquidate and chop everything in half. It doesn't work that way. We try to be sensible about it. 
um, to get a good result for everybody. But we do have to assess the value and the changing value of mm -hmm. items, right? Like I remember a case where we were talking about the changing value of art. And mm -hmm. so that the price of the paintings had evolved over time, over the marriage. Yes, and, yes. And things like that in the wine collection. So that's why it's so important for financial advisors to be a part of the mix. Yes, we love experts and the experts come in and value things and we would have somebody appraise the house. If they don't agree, if they, the husband and wife, or, you know, we also divorce same-sex people. So the husband, husband, or wife, wife, whoever we're divorcing, they, um, they might agree, hey, we both agree it's worth X. And then they don't have to hire an expert. But if we don't have agreement and nobody knows because they haven't tried to sell it, that's the best way to know, um, then we hire an appraiser. And they come in and they give us a, a report and we would take that to settlement table and try to settle it. But if we didn't, we would also use that as evidence at trial. Gotcha. This one will change gears a little bit, um, that the children can always choose who they live with in any situation. And, you know, it sounds funny, but I, I bet some parents come in actually super worried about this. There's a lot of confusion about that because like many misconceptions, there's a little truth that kind of got confused. So the family code says that when a child reaches age 12, either side can ask that the child be interviewed by the court and the child's preference as to who they live with more of the time should be heavily considered. So that doesn't mean it, it's absolutely true, right? The judge, we're assuming this is with a judge, the judge is going to weigh all of the evidence. So if the 12-year-old says, oh, I want to live with my dad more of the time, and the evidence shows that's because dad is letting him run the neighborhood free and take drugs and watch R-rated movies and never go to sleep, the judge would say, well, that's not going to happen, right? Because that's not good. But if all else was equal and good mom, good dad, and the child said, I'd rather be with my dad more of the time, then in that instance, if the court did decide it was going to follow the presumption, which is one person gets a little bit more time, it's not dramatically more, that I think that that preference would rule the day on that. And the dad would be the primary parent and the mom would have what we call standard possession. So the child can give a preference at 12. They don't have to give a preference. Nobody has to ask the child to be interviewed, but they could. Under the age of 12, it's optional for the court to interview. So the court could decide they do or do not want to interview. Some judges really like interviewing children and they think it's helpful. Some judges hate it and they do not like people asking. They think it's kind of child abuse. <laughs> so there's a wide range of opinion on that. Mm -hmm. So it's dealer's choice, pretty much. Yeah, you don't know who your judge is going to be. You can't select your judge. It's random assignment. So it would be good to know, you know, if you, it would be good to have a lawyer who could find that out or who knows how that judge feels about it. Unfortunately, I've heard a lot of cases where the parents are using the children to get at the other spouse. And is there some sort of protection or a person you hire to sort of evaluate the home situation mm -hmm. um, in an objective way, you know, yes. that's not your client? And Yes, that's a good question. And, and I'll add on to what we were talking about before. Another way to get the child's interest is in collaborative and this could be done outside of collaborative, but that's where it kind of evolved. We have something called a child specialist. So the child specialist interviews the kids at the request of both parents. 
and she's she i'm saying she because the child specialist i work with is a woman but it could be a man um the child specialist is educating the kids about the process of divorce educating the kids on all the different parenting schedules that are out there educating the kids on what their parents are learning as they go through the collaborative process and then they're also getting information from the kids on the kids worries about the whole situation not just where do they want to live or but kids will tell them the craziest things like i'm so worried that I'm going to have baseball on Saturday and my baseball bat is not going to be at the right house. You know, they're worrying over things that adults could easily solve if we knew what their worry was. So maybe it's all about their pet. They're, they're usually not thinking on the same plane the adults are, you know. So the child specialist can get all that information and with the child's permission, they script out, they tell the child, this isn't confidential, I'm going to tell your parents that person scripts out with the kids how they're going to tell the parents so that there's no blowback. You know, we don't want a child to go then get penalized by a parent because they said they didn't want to live at that house as much. It wouldn't be that direct. The child specialist would protect the child in how they relayed the concerns of the child. So that's been really powerful. I have seen that in not only the kids, minor children, but I've even had child specialists involved with adult children, like college age. May in one instance, they there was a affair partner, all this drama in the family. They were kind of getting estranged from the dad over it, and the child specialist came in and did some reconciliation work with wow. these adult children and their dad. I know, and That's it was really very wonderful. positive. And even if you represent the mom who's mad and probably caused some of this drama in her own, you know, because she was betrayed and hurt, she's got to know that these children are better off having a good relationship with their father for their own development, for their own future relationships. Assuming, you know, he's not, we, we yeah, all have, a criminal. I'm, I'm put, right, I'm putting <laughs> aside that I'm assuming he is a good enough person. He made a mistake, but he's not you know, damaging to be in the children's lives. So assuming that's true, um, it was really, really powerful. So there are times when um, getting the child's voice, that what we say is in child specialist work, we're getting their voice, not their vote. That it can be very powerful for the adults. They're really glad to get that information. And a judge can't get to that level. When a judge interviews, they're doing it for 30 minutes. I mean, they're not getting that kind of data. The child specialist will meet with the kids maybe for three sessions of an hour and a half each or something. So they'll really get more information. I think that's such a wonderful resource and yes. part of the process that a lot of people are not aware of. Yes, you know, agree. You, you just imagine two lawyers really battling it out. You don't really think of all of these wonderful resources that yes. help the process go more smoothly. Mm -hmm. Myth number eight is if you don't pay child support, you will never see your child again, which is pretty oh, dramatic. But yes, that is a that is a misunderstanding on both sides. Like sometimes someone will say, she or he won't let me see the child because I didn't pay child support. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and and sometimes people will accept that. They'll think, oh, well, that's right, I can't see him or her. The courts do not connect those two things. They're both court orders, right? So someone will have an order that says you're supposed to pay child support on this day 
And then there's going to be a specific order about you get to see the child on this day and in this way. They're both enforceable, and that's the remedy. So the remedy is not to withhold the child. The remedy is to file a motion to enforce and go get them the judge to make them pay the child support. And in Dallas and, and in Texas everywhere, the attorney general will do it for free. Oh. So you don't have to hire a lawyer to get your child support enforced. Now, it's not always fast because they do it for free regardless, regardless of income level for everyone. So it might take a little while, but you can file with the attorney general and they will go enforce your child support for you. And But in the meantime, you can't withhold that child. The child, the person has a right to the child. So you can get in big trouble for not paying child support and you can get in big trouble or withholding a child when somebody has an order that gives them a right to have the child. And that's where criminal charges can come in. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, you could go to jail. For both. Yes. For if I, like, we'll use me as an example. If I don't let my ex see my child because he hasn't paid, or if I don't pay yes. child support, I can potentially Eventually. go to jail. Yes. I mean, it wouldn't be the first step. The judge would try to get you to just do right. <laughs> so it's not immediate, go to jail, but um, that would ultimately be the remedy. And that inspires people. They suddenly find the money when the judge like, says, oh, go to jail. It was here the whole time. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, let's see. Uh, the last one, and then this is a, a really interesting one to me because I'm 30 and I'm part of this generation where marriage is is different than it was, or it's approached a little differently than mm -hmm. it was when my parents got married. Or, mm -hmm. uh, the social stigma associated with divorce, that if you file for divorce, you're essentially signing up for rejection from your peers and judgment, and no matter what the scenario is, whether it's just two people growing apart or if there was infidelity, that it doesn't matter that you're going to be seen as, you know, we said scarlet letter earlier, mm -hmm. but, you know, that you're going to carry that around for the rest of your life. And yeah, I think we've certainly come a long way and we have less of a stigma. I think divorce has become more acceptable. A lot of the population has been divorced. However, there are still people that I see that maybe it's because they're of their religious, their religion, that it's not acceptable in that religion, or maybe in their family, and maybe their tradition of they're maybe from another country originally, they've immigrated here, but in that tradition from where they're from, it's not acceptable. So it's not acceptable to their family. That can be a cause. And some people who don't even come from any of those backgrounds, just say to me, I never thought of myself as a divorced person. And they are embarrassed. They don't want to be a divorced person. And my experience is that people are not quick to divorce, that they in fact stay way too long. And it's because of one of these reasons, that they just don't personally like the concept of being divorced, they feel like socially it's not acceptable for their situation and they don't want a divorce, but they are. So I, I heard of mental health professionals say people spend five years wow. in dysfunction before they get a divorce. And that was pretty surprising to me. I would have guessed a year that it takes people about a year to say, this is never going to change. It's not functional. I'm not happy. They're not happy. 
and I need, I have a right to be happy and people do, they have a right to be happy. What is interesting that we're seeing now is old people are getting divorced and that was not true 10 years ago. I had somebody call me yesterday. They had been married over 50 years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So they're like late seventies. They, you know, married young and they're going to get divorced Used to, that generation, it just wasn't acceptable to get divorced. So I think it's a combination of things. People are living longer, so they have more life to maybe go be happy in. And why stay miserable? And it's become socially acceptable enough for that generation to now say, I'm going to get divorced. It still surprises me. Like 50 years, you have to tell me it didn't just suddenly become unbearable. Right. Like why 50 why years? Now? Did, right. Why yeah. now? <laughs> Compared to it was miserable 10 years ago. Um, so it is still surprising. And I have with those, what we call them gray divorces. Sometimes the people don't stick to it. Like I've had women who are like, he treats me horrible. I'm divorcing. And I had one file and then they did a little negotiation to stay married where, um, it was financial. She didn't have any financial control. They had a bunch of money, but she had no access to it. You know, she'd get her little pittance of a uh, allowance every month. And if he's mad at her, he wouldn't give her the full allowance. So they did a little negotiation where she was going to get more control of money. And then they were going to stay married. Well, she called me back, you know, within a year and said, okay, he's not even doing the things we negotiated to give me the money that I'm supposed to have. And he's just beat me over the head to get me to sign some of the money control back over to him. And now I have to get divorced, you know? So unfortunately they, if they've had this long history of allowing themselves to be treated that way, it's really hard to break oh, yeah. that cycle. Old habits die hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, well, that wraps up our nine misconceptions. <laughs> these were, these are questions I hear all the time. You know, when I'm doing research for marketing and, the division between a lay person and a lawyer. And so this mm -hmm. was really helpful for even me, things that I've never <laughs> really thought about, especially with the spousal support. Um, and so thank you so much for thank answering you. these questions. Thank you, Mo, for being on this show. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I love Duffy Knightson. I'm a huge fan. I think all of our <laughs> lawyers are incredible. And as you can see, they're extremely experienced as well. So... I've, it's just been a pleasure. Thank you, Mo. Great shout out. Thank you for watching. That's a wrap.